I'd like to continue a thought process, and I know I'm stretching you because this is a thought process I started with you last fall uh, when I was here back in, I believe, early November, late October, early November. And we uh, began kind of a study of the book of Acts and uh, jumped off of that back in January to talk specifically about one aspect of the gospel. And I'd like us to go back to that today as we talk about uh, this particular question. Just to let this kind of percolate for a few moments in your, in your mind. How would I know a good church if I saw one? Maybe we could ration it up a little bit more. How would I know a great church if I was in the midst of one? What do you think? I'm not asking for you to audibly answer, but just as, as I just pose that question, first going with the adjective good, and then in the next one going to the adjective great. What do you think about? What are the things that kind of stand out as we would ponder that particular question? As we work through the book of Acts, we are looking at um, not necessarily everything that's etched in stone at the time, because of course when we come to the book of Acts, as we did back in in, uh, the fall, we recognize the fact that um, as we read Acts, we are looking at the second volume of a two-volume set written by a doctor named Luke. The first uh, volume of that two-volume set is the Gospel of Luke, where we learn about the life and times of Jesus Christ, his purpose for coming. You remember we uh, just briefly uh, referenced the fact that Jesus often said, uh, even though they didn't catch it, he often said, and we could quote chapter and verse to this, it is necessary for me to come. Uh, that I would go to Jerusalem, that I would, I would be scourged and crucified, dying on the cross. We're remembering that this time of year. And then three days later, I would raise again from the dead. And he said that often. Uh, he also said this, as Luke records it in his first volume. The Father sent me, the Son, to be the Savior of the world. And to seek those who are lost. And that is just the common theme. And even at the end of Luke, in chapter 24, as Jesus is walking down this road to a place called Emmaus, and he's with followers of his who, at that point, for whatever reason, didn't recognize who was with them, he begins at the beginning of Scripture. And, of course, at that point, all they had was what we know now as the Old Testament. But at the beginning of Scripture, he he gives a dialogue all the way through. It's kind of like a, a travel travelogue in those old days before we had smartphones and internet and all of that. He used to do travelogues to give everything about a particular location or a particular person in their life. And so he takes them through all of Scripture and points to the fact that he's the one. And Luke's first volume ends, and then we come to the second volume, Acts chapter 1. And uh, Luke even writes, you know, Theophilus, I'm writing to you because I want to pick up where I left off in the first volume about all that Jesus had done and is and what he will do. And it's not that he just spends like a few sentences talking about it and to the point when Jesus ascends into heaven, as it's recorded in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. That's not where the second volume ends, because that's not where the ministry of Christ ends. It's actually only now just beginning in full force as Jesus sends his followers to an upper room and he says, you stay there until that which I've promised, John chapter 14, John chapter 16 records all of that, that Jesus had uh, shared with them about the fact that 
it's not bad that I'm leaving because I will send someone as a comforter who will not just be with you, but will be in you. Of course, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He even reminds him of that as he gives kind of a reiteration of the Great Commission in Acts 1.8, where he says, when he, the Holy Spirit, has come upon you, you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses, starting in your home base, Jerusalem, the region where you live, Judea, the, the people that are out of your comfort zone, the Samaritans, to the end of the earth, wherever you are, this is what you're to be doing. And the church's birth, Acts chapter 2. We read about that as on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God indeed comes upon those believers gathered for prayer in the upper room. They're baptized like the baby church was as an infant church into the body of Christ. They come crying out to the glory of God, giving testimony to the glories of God's grace through Jesus Christ. At the end of Acts chapter 2, we read of the fact that beginning in verse 40, uh, 41, when Peter gets up to preach and, and tells the people who are bewildered there because People are looking at these people that are primarily from the same region, and yet, as they're declaring God's grace, they're hearing them from their own dialects, their background. People who grew up in the deep south of Palestine are hearing them with with southern accents tell about the glories of God's grace. And then people who grew up in the upper peninsula of Palestine are talking in the way that upper UP people, I don't even try to imitate them because I can't. But they have a different dialect. They have a different accent. But some were from other regions of the, of, of the then known world. And, and they're hearing these people share the gospel in their language. And so they're saying, wow, this is amazing. They must be drunk. Let me ask you something. Have you ever met a drunk person? Someone who's under the influence of alcohol? Who's ever made any sense? Let alone be able to speak in a foreign language. So Peter stands up in their midst. He says, hey, you people are thinking that they're drunk? No, they're influenced by the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you what this means. And he preaches the first gospel message. And there are thousands who come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that forms the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, we read the dynamics of the church. They were gathered together in oneness, and that oneness was identified by the fact that they had a common doctrine. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the unity was in the doctrine that God had given them. They broke bread together, which means they had a commonness in understanding the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross, because that actually references the fact that they were gathered together in what we might call communion. And remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ by the sharing of the elements of the bread and the cup. It says that they were, they were, they were fellowshipping together. And they didn't have fellowships halls back then. They didn't have buildings back then. So it wasn't going to a room where you're given a cookie or two and a, a glass of Kool-Aid or whatever. It's fellowship in terms of calmness and oneness and all the things that God does in the midst of his people who are brought together under the under the name of Jesus Christ, and they prayed. Those four dynamics were what made and composed the church. And they grew, and they were dynamic. And we spent time in Acts 4, our last time, talking about how the focus on that fourth dynamic, prayer, made all the difference in the way that they would, they would face life, they would face persecution, the way that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But you remember... Acts 1.8, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses. And Jesus said to them, you're not to stay just in Jerusalem. This is something that's going to go out into all the world. And as is common for all churches of all ages, it's easy for us to kind of get into our comfort zone. 
and our niche and just enjoy being in our comfort zone niches where we're not willing to really expand and spread our wings, as it might be, in terms of our gospel influence, our gracious influence by reaching out to others. And sometimes it takes God nudging us in some of the most extraordinary ways for that to happen. It might take a shooting on a campus of a university right down the road from us. It might be some health... (coughs) Excuse me. Thank you. (coughs) That's two more amens, okay? You owe me a couple, all right? You owe him a couple. (laughs) It, It might be something that comes into your life, like a cancer or a heart issue or whatever it might be. It might be challenges with your family. It might be the loss of a job. It might be a radical relocation that you weren't anticipating at all. And actually, many of those things I've just listed is what happened in chapter 7 when this man who was a prototype for what we call deacons in a local church named Stephen gets up and he is uh, just a dynamic man in the Jerusalem church and he shares a testimony because people are pushing him from the other side of the religious spectrum to say, why are you being so bold? And he tells them about really what Jesus did with the followers on the Emmaus road. In, In many ways, it may be similar. We don't even know. Maybe Stephen was discipled by one of those Emmaus travelers because it seems very similar to what, in a more compact way, Jesus had shared on the Emmaus road, Luke 24. Now Luke unpacks it even further in Acts chapter 7, and Stephen gives this message pointing people very clearly to Jesus Christ as being the Messiah. And the crowd just loved it. The religious ruler said, Oh, Stephen, we've been waiting for someone like you to come and to tell us and open our eyes to the truth. Right? No, wrong. They were not just ticked off. That's the Greek word, by the way. They were inflamed and infuriated to the point that they start stripping off their outer clothing. They find some guy named Saul to kind of stand in the background and, and, and protect their garments so no one would take them or tear them apart or whatever. And in their, in their incense fervor with, with uh, you know, just mouths that are just, you know, in just anger, they pick up rocks and they stone Stephen to death. And even in his martyrdom, he looks up and he says, I see Jesus high and lifted up. And that made them even matter. And at that point, the religious establishment of the day had them right where they wanted them, this early church in Jerusalem. And they went to the leaders, the secular leaders of Rome, and they said, did you see that? Do you see what's going on here? Do you see this group that they have now been called the way? Do you see what's going on in their lives? Do you see the fact that they are, we've been telling you they're a threat, they're a threat, they're a threat. You've got to do something about them. And they did. They said, here's our plan. We're going to break them up. We're going to tear families apart. We're going to send some to a particular place on one side of the then known world. We're going to send some others to another location. And that will disperse any possibility of them causing another riot or worse than this from their perspective. An insurrection of our government. And that word that I used a sentence ago, the word disperse, is a way in which church historians talk about this event between chapter 7 and chapter 8. 
It's called the dispersion, the diaspora. If you're reading uh, Christian history and you're reading commentaries in the book of Acts. And it's basically when everything was blown apart as the infant church in Jerusalem had known it. And that became, by the way, the first church planning movement in church history. And there have been no workshops or materials that have been written for this. God just said, here's how we're going to do it. And we're sending you off. And I guess this is Acts chapter 11, where we'll spend the rest of our moments this morning. Because when you come to chapter 11 in verse 19, you read this statement. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Now you understand why I took the time for us to kind of get in our minds where we're heading. Because you won't appreciate what's going to happen in the rest of Acts chapter 11 unless you understand the backstory. Because it's easy for us to just kind of coast through this narrative and think, well, you know, wow, that's pretty neat. They were pretty, pretty amazing people. Until you really appreciate the fact that we're dealing with a group of people that form what we know as the church in Antioch that we're looking at here. That had every reason, listen to me, they had every reason to fail. Not only did they have every reason to fail, they had every reason to not even be a church in Antioch to begin with. Now listen, listen to what it says here in this narrative, and then we'll go back and look at a couple things that I think are are the points that really stand out here. Now those arose, there arose those who were scattered because of the persecution over Stephen. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Those are Jewish converts that are Greek converts to Judaism, okay? The Hellenists, they're not quote-unquote Christians, but they at least understand Old Testament, okay? They're the Hellenists, who came to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. So, they use the biblical background that these Greek converts to Judaism would understand, but they're using it in a way not just to reaffirm their Jewishness, but to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what's going on here. And, verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. In other words, God honored their testimony and the veracity and accuracy of what they were declaring from Old Testament Scripture, bringing it into the context of their day right then and there. The report of this, or in verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. They accepted Christ. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. He came and saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he, Barnabas, was a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Let's just think about this for a few minutes. How would I know a great church if I saw one? So here's Barnabas. By the way, it's not his name. His name's Joseph. But he gets this nickname, Barnabas, which many of us know probably means what? Son of encouragement or the encouraging guy. I like Barnabas. That's probably a better nickname than Crash Howard. But, 
You know, we get named different things. I, you know, I, it was funny at this conference a week ago, Saturday, the main speaker, the keynote, uh, I've known for years and, uh, actually he was my parents' pastor for several years. So he gets up before he speaks the first session and he says, I don't know a lot of you here, but I know a few people and he points them out. And the first name out of his mouth is Kenny Floyd. And people are looking around like, Kenny? Well, by that time, I'd already sunk under my seat because no one calls me Kenny unless they know me, kind of like Saul. That's my pre-conversion name. That's the name that I grew up with as a young boy and then as a young man prior to my senior year in high school when I accepted Jesus Christ during my senior year of high school. And I went off to college, and when I went to Cedarville, I became Ken. And so anyone who says Kenny, like that lady sitting right there, knew me from high school or before. And no one who knows me from that point forward is allowed to call me Kenny. So don't even try it. Don't try it. Because I will cough all over you today. That's okay. It's It's a term of endearment for people who knew me when I had hair, when I had zits, when I, you know, whatever. But Barnabas, this encouraging man, is sent from the church in Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, let's just think about that for a moment. Why did they pick Barnabas? Because there were a lot of other scholars. I mean, Barnabas wasn't one of the apostles. Why didn't one of the apostles go up to Antioch? Well, because there's a little bit of a, of a dilemma here with, the, with the, uh, the leadership in Jerusalem. Because they're hearing what? They're hearing God's grace... God's gospel, the gospel of Christ, is being presented and people are coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. So, great, that's good. But you know what? There's a lot of stuff that's happening in Antioch we're not sure about. So who do we send? Do you send someone who's going to be a bull in a china shop and come up and just, you know, why are you doing it this way? No, you send someone who is known for his encouraging manner. who will go in and kind of in a stealth-like way observe. And be able to get the big picture and look for some details and then bring a report back. And Barnabas was their guy. And so here's Barnabas. He goes to Antioch. He, he, you know, the rumors have been all around because Antioch was a major city at that time. It kind of be like, um, probably not New York City, but more like a Chicago big, big city where a lot of trade is done. And, and so, you know, you'd have these people going back and forth, these major cities, 300 miles uh, northwest of Jerusalem is Antioch. And so here's these, here's these Jewish now saved Christian grandmas who are buying wares from these trade merchants who would come down from Antioch. And as they're, as they're buying things, they say, where are you from? Where, where were you just Latin? He'd say, Antioch. Oh, 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 my, my grandkids were forced to move to Antioch. By the Roman government. Did you happen to get, did you meet little, you know, and she'd say a name and, well, no, but I have heard things about some things going on in Antioch. And that's, that's really how the communication network went. I mean, there was a World Wide Web before there was a World Wide Web. And it was, it was uh, neighbor to neighbor and grandma to grandma talking to each other, okay? That still happens, we know that, but it's more sophisticated now. And, um, so they heard about this thing going on in Antioch. So they send Barnabas up there, and Barnabas looks around. And, and go back with me to chapter 11 and verse 22. The report of this came to the ears in the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch, 
And when he came, you with me? He saw the grace of God. How do I know a good church when I see one? I see grace in action. We could just stop right here, right? Well, I drove from Grand Rapids, so I want to share a little more than just that. But that's it. Actually, the question would be, how could I know a graced church when I see one? So there's a little more work for us to do. So why is it of all the things that could have been put into Scripture that Dr. Luke, as a very finely tuned man looking for details as a doctor, when Barnabas comes back and reports, and Luke hears about this, and here's what Barnabas is saying, the Spirit of God would direct Luke to put this phrase, when Barnabas saw the grace of God. You ever see grace? Well, some of us say grace. You know, that's the way you, that's what we call dinnertime prayers. I'm not sure how that got started. I don't really like it because there's more to grace than just saying a prayer, saying, God, help me to not choke on this food or help me to like Brussels sprouts if I don't like them, turn them into chocolate, you know, covered cherries since I love those. I, I want to taste this broccoli like it's uh, a piece of pizza, which is what I really wanted my mom to serve me today or whatever it might be. How do you see Grace. We, we study grace, right? I mean, that's a whole section of theology. And as a student of God's word in college and in seminary, spent a lot of time making sure that those who are preparing for pastoral ministry understand grace because you're going to traffic and navigate in it every single day in your own personal life and the way in which you interact with others. But they didn't have any theological training in Antioch. They didn't have Bible schools that were cranking out preachers to know that. We, at this point, we don't even know that they had a pastor. But they had grace. And Barnabas saw it. What did he see? Back up with me. Back the truck up a few verses. Because here's what he observed. It says, when he got there, he saw the hand of the Lord was with them. Because they were pioneering. You notice what it says? Here they are in Antioch. By the way, very few Jews. Just some Hellenists who had been Gentiles converted to Judaism. But most of the people are Gentiles. Uh, very unlike the people they were with in Jerusalem. In their neighborhoods, because they were Jewish neighborhoods, everyone's Jewish. So I approach, as a new believer in Jesus Christ, my explanation of the gospel to those Jews by using the Old Testament. And those from Cyprus and Cyrene did that with the Hellenists because at least these Gentile converts to Judaism would have a basis to understand Old Testament law and scripture. But the vast majority of the people in those neighborhoods, they weren't, they weren't Jewish converts uh, as Gentiles. They had no understanding of anything of spirituality from that perspective. They were just pagans running after all kinds of Greek gods that were schemed up for them or whatever it might be. They had no way to start with the basis of saying, thus says the word of God. Uh, fast forward, if you want, later on in your own study to when Paul goes to Mars Hill and realize that there he doesn't talk much about Scripture. He, he, he finds things from the culture around them to at least give a starting point to point them to Christ. 
But they were pioneering. They were not willing to just say, well, it doesn't seem like we have any way to inch into this, so we're just going to kind of sit in our corner and suck our thumbs until Jesus calls us home. They had every reason to be mad, right? They had every reason to have a bad attitude because they didn't go to Antioch by their choice. It wasn't that God said, hey, I'm going to put it on your heart to go and be missionaries to Antioch. Rome sent them there. Rome tore them from their families. And yet, they did not let that be an excuse to keep them from being gracious, Christ-like people. I'm sorry you have cancer. I'm heartbroken that my mom has to have heart surgery a week from this coming Tuesday. You say, well, she's older. Yeah, but, I mean, does that change the fact that you, you hurt for people that are hurting? No. I wish that some of my friends had jobs, that they weren't laid off for a long time. They've got great resumes, great pedigrees, and yet they still can't find a job. I feel bad for some who are working at a drive-thru when they could be a rocket scientist. I'm sorry that the economy is not like it was when my parents were my age and could plan to benefit their kids and grandkids. And nowadays, the Generation Z children that are growing up around us don't have the benefit. They're the first generation in our nation's history that have it worse off than their parents. I'm sorry for all of that, but does that mean we just shut the door to the gospel? No. They did in Antioch. No one... I mean, can you imagine moving to Antioch because Rome told you to? And the rumor gets around the neighborhood. Oh, you see that new family in there. They, they are a little different. They, their accent's different. Their, their customs are different. They don't eat what we eat. They don't do what we do. Oh, and by the way, Rome punished them by bringing them here. Do you, you think they're going to bring the welcome wagon like they used to do in the old days and bring a gift basket to their front door? Do you think when they try to start a business in that community that people from Antioch are going to flock to their business and say, oh, we've been waiting for you to come so that we can buy what you're putting out? No. Stay away from me. Rome's against you. I don't have anything to do with you because we like to get along with Rome. It's exactly what's going on. Barnabas walks in the mist, he looks and he sees grace because they were pioneering. They did not let their personal circumstances keep them from declaring the grace of God to others. To the point that it wasn't just that they were willing to share about their background and what Christ has done for them, but secondly, he saw grace because they went to the point of sharing the gospel with those around them. They were evangelistic, not just pioneering. And we can think of all kinds of methods to try to carve into Mount Pleasant. And be an effective local church and reaching others with the gospel. But you know what? At some certain point, it has to come down to talking theoretically and just actually doing it. And opening the opportunity as God gives us the direction to actually say to someone, have you ever considered Jesus Christ and his claims for your life? And actually getting down to the nitty gritty of just saying, this is what it is. And they did. And they responded And that's why Jerusalem is hearing now about this growing group of people in Antioch. And they say, we got to send someone to check this out. Barnabas went up the 300-mile trip to Antioch. And when he went in their midst and saw what they're doing, he saw grace. Because they were pioneering. They were people who were willing to reach out evangelistically and actually share the gospel. Not just live it. They shared the actual gospel with them. And people came to Christ. And everyone took notice. Not just the people coming to Christ, but the whole community. You know how we know that? Well, I stopped off in verse 25. You look at verse 26, you read this. It says, so 
Barnabas went to Tarsus and found Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's, that's how we know. By the way, they didn't get together with a PR firm and say, what could be our little catchphrase for us as the church of Antioch? What can we put as the byline? Ah, got it, Christian! No. The townies called them Christians. The pagan unbelievers called them Christians. Oh, just look at these people. They're like little Christ. That's what Christian means, by the way. They're just like little Christ. They just go around and, and all their lives is talking about this Christ. I don't think it was really a compliment, but it stuck because they were people of grace. And when you observe grace in someone's life, it is going to be very obvious to them that they are not the controllers or owners of their lives. The Lord Jesus Christ is, I'm, you are Christians. And that's what makes the difference. And Barnabas packs up his gear, goes back to Jerusalem, reports to the leaders of the Jerusalem council there, Here's what I saw. I saw the grace of God demonstrated regularly in the people's lives. It wasn't cataloged in separate little categories where it was just certain times they did it. It was just their lives just ooze the grace of God. It's either Moody or Spurgeon. I can't remember which one right now. I'm under the influence of the leftover effects of my antibiotics, but... One of them said, I just want it to be that when someone bumps into me, there's so much grace filling my life that it just sloshes out of me and onto other people. That's Antioch. That's the church in Antioch. We could do a lot more, but we need to close here. I just want to bring up one thing. I love this passage. It is just so full of so many dynamic things and there's a lot that you could still look at and so do it, okay? Because I'm not going to be the one to be able to lead you through this in the next few weeks. But but there's a statement, okay? He saw the grace of God. He was glad, exhorted them to remain faithful and he says, i got to go back down to Jerusalem. And as he's traveling to Jerusalem, verse 26, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And if you're not careful, you just keep kind of clipping through this narrative and you miss that. He looked for Saul. Who's Saul? He's the guy holding the coats, the cloaks, at the stoning of Stephen, where the riot occurs. And the established religious leaders go to, to Rome and say, you see what's happening? There's an uprising. You've got to do something about it. And say, We're going to disperse them all over the world. And there's Saul standing there holding the coats, snarling, going off on his own to, to kill Christians. Until he meets Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says to him, Paul, why are you, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Kenny's name is changed to Ken after conversion. Only it's Saul to Paul. And Barnabas thinks, I've got to go see Saul. And bring him to Antioch. I think Paul already had his name Paul as his new name, but Luke makes sure we remember this is Saul. 
Now imagine that conversation. Barnabas finds Saul and he says, Saul, I got something great to tell you. You remember the people that you wanted dead? They're in Antioch. Some of the relatives of the people in Antioch you've seen killed. And the church is exploding. I want you to go with me. You've got to see it. And Paul, no way. Uh-uh, I'm not going there. Number one, I'm still bearing, even though Christ has said he's free, I'm still bearing the guilt and shame of that. I can't go there. I can't face those people after what I've done. No, you got to go with me. No, no, no. What do you think you're going to do to me when we get there? And I don't know if word got to Antioch, but they're making their way up to Antioch, Saul and Barnabas. Can you imagine what it must have been like when on the horizon you see these two figures and one's someone they already know? Oh, there's that encouraging guy, Barnabas. Who's that other guy? He looks familiar. Who? Who? Is this a setup? Is that why Barnabas came to begin with, just to find where we were so that he could bring Saul and do away with all of us? Can you imagine what those moments were like? And Luke says, he brought them to Antioch, verse 26, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And there in Antioch, the followers of the way, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ were first called little Christ Christians because God's grace overflowed in their lives. That's how you know a great slash graced church when you see one. And First Baptist of Mount Pleasant, that's exactly what God wants from you and from me. And every body of believers that Jesus Christ has raised up all over this planet needs to be demonstrators of the grace of God. And it's got to be obvious. And it starts with dealing with people and their pain and their heartache and their bewilderment and saying, you know what, I can relate to that. I can relate to lostness and futility and looking at my life and the scariness of death. Because I'm just like you. But let me introduce you to someone who is not. He's like us in the fact that he came to identify with us. But he's the God-man, Christ Jesus. Would you mind if I introduced him to you and let you know about the grace of God? And Father, we pray this morning that you'll help us to live in such a way and to dialogue in such a way that we would be labeled little Christ. Not just because we subscribe to a label, but because that's who we are. And we love you, who first loved us, Lord Jesus. If someone here today has not yet experienced your grace by receiving you, Lord, as their Savior, we pray that today will be the day of their salvation. As we also pray that this will be the day 
of our salvation as a local church as we recognize not all of our our insecurities or our woeful insufficiencies, but who we are in Christ Jesus, which enables us to be strong and dynamic and impacting our culture with the glorious gospel of your grace. For your glory, pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.